I'm visiting a married couple in the Phoenix suburbs. There's a pull-out back, snacks on the counter, and a happy Diwali card on the fridge. And they're telling me their meet-cute story, how they met 17 years ago. I was a freshman in college, and— I think the proper term is first-year uh, student okay, now. Okay, We don't use those problematic terms like freshman and sophomore. I got it. That makes sense. I was a first-year student in college, and I walked into a survey class— And there were two professors, and one of them was the most charismatic person I have ever encountered in my life. For this couple, their meet-cute was more like a meet-complicated. Nishta wasn't all the way out to her Indian parents, who still thought liking girls was a phase. And Jill was already seeing someone. And then there was this big age gap between student and teacher. She's 19, I'm 39 at the time. And... I was just, I was nauseous for weeks. All of Jill's friends thought this was her early midlife crisis. Nishta called her parents to let them know she'd likely be sharing her life with a woman. It was very clear that this was to be a relationship of some destiny. I mean, I use that word sort of with a a wink, but it was clear. And to walk away from it felt even more wrong. Nishta and Jill spent a lot of time talking about everything that made their situation fraught, the power dynamics involved, university policy, how the younger person in a student-teacher relationship usually gets hurt the worst, and even how to make sure that between the long, wonderful dinners in Jill's backyard off campus, Nishta would still have a college experience. She did all kinds of things that nobody really wants to do at 39, like come and stay at the house of my college friends, right? Like, where we didn't, like, have toilet paper. You know, it was just, like, gross. Like, who wants to do it on the 39, right? But she she did that, right? Because this was the, the thing that we were going to do, right? Like, she picked me up from these college parties at, like, midnight, you know? Like, Three in the morning. Right. And, you know, held back my hair. And it wasn't easy. No, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work, and it was you know, hard and confusing, and there was no roadmap. And when you're already operating without a roadmap, why not use your skills at off-roading to pave your own way? This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. When you picture a family in America, sometimes that comes with an assumption that everyone's going to look the same, like a matching set of dolls. And whenever that's not the case, those family members are stuck explaining their situation. To the waiter who will bring a same-sex married couple separate bills, to the mom at the playground who just assumed you're the nanny. Just one of those differences can curse you with a chronic case of nosy strangers. Which is why Jill and Nishta call themselves a family that checks all the boxes. They're a same-sex couple. There's a 20-year age difference. And they're a mixed-race couple. Jill's white, Nishta's first-generation Indian-American. Today on the show, we'll hear how they've never shied away from a difficult conversation, even when their family expanded in a way that inspired a whole new set of annoying questions. Their family is the subject of Nishta's new memoir, Brown, White, and Black, an American family at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and religion. Sitting on sofas in their Phoenix home, Nishta and Jill are telling me about their relationship— when Jill gestures towards a sheet of computer paper taped to their fridge. And that's part of the mission statement that we have for our 
relationship. We actually have a mission statement. We, we are those people. Yeah. We walk over to read it. The mission statement, ripped in the corners, has probably been through a couple moves. In big, bold font are the words that have guided them for 17 years together. A courageous, passionate relationship built to last that inspires us and everyone around us to be bigger than they've known themselves to be. We put stuff on the fridge. <laughs> it's kind of what we do. Being bigger than you've known yourself to be. It first came up when they started talking about kids. At 39 years old, Jill was clear. She did not want to be a mom. And so enter Nishjamara, and who's wanted to be a child since, have a child since she was a child. And so we had to think about it, you know. I was also, you know, 19, so not in a hurry. Nishta waited to see if Jill would have a change of heart. And not just a change of heart, but the kind of change where Jill would be completely committed to parenting with her. Because in their relationship, the only way kids would happen is deliberately. You know, for us, it doesn't happen on accident. Yeah, so. you know, zero line in our budget for birth control, right? So then one day I'm reading a, a New York Times story at like five in the morning. And in the center uh, of the paper was this story about AIDS orphans in Uganda. And there was this big picture of a little boy. He was a toddler and he was standing up and it was a close-up of him and he was holding on to the leg of an aid worker. Little boy was named Bruno. And the caption explained that both of his parents had died of AIDS. The picture just broke me and I started crying. And the feeling that came up for me was... This kid needs somebody to stand up and just get him raised and be a parent for him. And if I can't expand myself enough to stand up and get a kid like this raised, who could? I could. Jill realized she wanted to get a kid raised. Some kid, someday, through adoption. Nisha is beaming. It was like a, a switch got flipped. You and see why I married her, huh? And Nisha was inspired by Jill to rethink her plan, too. You know, I had sort of imagined being pregnant and having that experience of giving birth. And, you know, when Jill talked about sort of expanding herself into something bigger, I thought, you know, I can do that, too, right? Like, I can let go of some attachment to having a biological child, or having that experience of pregnancy and birth. So Jill and Nishta agreed. Adoption was the best path for their family. But before they could get fully on board with adopting, Jill started having doubts that they'd even be compatible as parents. Nishta and I are raised in different generations. And we're raised in different classes. I'm raised in a blue-collar, working-class family, and I was a kid in the—I'm born in 63, so I start school in 1968, 69. I'm a kid of the 70s. You know, we—I never wore a bike helmet. We didn't wear seat belts. You know, we drank out of the water hose. I ate out of the dog bowl. I mean, Nishra's raised in a very different generation in the 80s and 90s, and so— I was concerned. You know, parenting has changed. Parenting is very different now, certainly than it was when I was a kid. And it's different than when you were a kid. And so I was concerned that we would have just two very different 
perspectives on what it meant to be a parent and that there would be a lot of work for us to even get on the same page together. And that, it freaked me out. And then in 2010, Jill and Nisha took their first baby steps towards a baby. Back then, they lived near Houston, Texas, and found a domestic private adoption agency, one of the only ones that wasn't religiously affiliated and who specialized in, quote-unquote, non-traditional families, which included same-sex couples like them who weren't able to be legally married. It was 2010, and the Supreme Court was still five years away from ruling on gay marriage. The agency sent them adoption paperwork, a lot of it. The papers sat on the kitchen table. They're busy, you know? They're doing a lot of projects around the house. Jill had just ripped up the dining room carpet and was staining the concrete underneath. We ended up doing nearly our whole house DIY. And by we, she means her. And in that process, Jill blew a disc in her neck. And when I went to do the MRI, they said, yeah, you've got, you know, C5, C7, all the Cs are out. But the bigger issues, you've got this big thing in your chest. The adoption paperwork was going to have to wait. Jill was diagnosed with a thymoma a rare condition where your thymus gland becomes a cancerous tumor. Jill and Nishta spent the next year focused on surgery and then the chemo. By the end of it, exactly five weeks after Jill was declared cancer-free, they knew what to do with the paperwork. You know, cancer will, has a way of clearing the mind and has a way of changing your perspectives, at least it did for me. So we had some life experience together as a couple that I think informed things when we finally got to the adoption paperwork. It was 2011, and the agency that specialized in non-traditional families was now even more necessary. Non-traditional adoptive parents includes parents over 45 years old, parents who are not five years cancer-free. So I was 47, 48 at the time. I was like, Five weeks, cancer-free. <laughs> a couple months, but yeah. <laughs> One of the documents on the kitchen table was called the Autobiographical Instrument. A long list of questions covering everything. Finances, marriage, religion, legal status, reasons for adopting. Instead of treating it like a bureaucratic waste of time, Nisha and Jill decided to treat it like pre-parental counseling. They printed out separate copies and then sat down at the kitchen table, one at a time, comparing their answers. The questions were things like, you know, how would you describe your childhood? What things do you now want to bring forward from your childhood and parenting, the way you were parented, into your role as a parent? What are some memories of, you know, spending time as a family? What things do you mostly really don't want to bring forward? How do you handle conflict in your marriage? The 70s kid and the 90s kid, their answers were lining up. What did you do as a family? How are you going to handle money? How was discipline handled? One of the questions was, what holidays will you celebrate in your future family? Nishta already had a plan for what she wanted to cook, how they decorate the tree. And Jill loved the question, what do you think your partner will be really good at in terms of parenting? She loved thinking about this. They both did. When you're going into adoption, you try almost not to envision things because it can you can get so easily attached and there can be so much disappointment there. But it was really fun to let myself imagine, you know, the things that we would want. You know, we both of us spent lots of time outside as a kid, like road bikes. And that was something we really wanted was our kid to be able to just be outside and have that imaginative time. 
there was something about this vision of themselves as partners in parenthood that reminded Jill of having cancer. I mean, yeah, it was in my body. It wasn't in Nisha's body. It was in mine. But it was definitely a partnership experience because we did that journey together. And I, my sense of my marriage and my partnership with Nisha altered profoundly. And so then we're going through this questionnaire and I'm like, this is just another opportunity for partnership. <laughs> this is how, how cool is this? And we hopefully don't have to do it like sitting on a hospital bed eating right. takeout. And hopefully it won't involve big needles in my veins and a port in my arm. And, all, you know, it'll, I may not get any sleep for a while, but I did that with chemo. So that's fine. We can do that. They'd soon create a new addition to their mission statement. This part about them as a family, not just as a couple. It's also on the fridge because they are those people. A joyful, rock-solid family full of love that honors our individuality and grounds each of us as we create our lives together. And now, they just needed a kid whose individuality they could start honoring. Don't go away. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. <laughs> Welcome back. So Jill and Nisha are working on the adoption paperwork, and eventually they get to the less fun part. Section 14, Desired Child, where it asks them to describe the kind of child they'd like to adopt. So I think I really had to confront my own fears about whether or not I was prepared to raise a child of a different race. I mean, it seemed very likely, right, that I would, would, right? There are not a lot of Asian babies floating around in the adoption industry domestically. But what we learned quickly was that if we wanted a white baby, which a lot of people do, we would be waiting a long time. And if we were open to other babies, right, we would probably not be waiting as long. Is there, they don't say it as explicitly as that, do they? They kind of do. They kind of do, yeah. I mean, I think once you're in the world of adoption, you're like, what is going on, right? Like, it's, it is... It's an industry, and there are babies to place. Their adoption agency had two different fee structures. One that was standard, and one for when you're adopting a child of color, which in their area probably meant a black child. In fascinating and horrifying fashion, right? The industry reflects society. And so much like we used to have a one-drop rule, quote-unquote, in, in our society, a child who is in any way Black or has any sort of relationship to a Black parent or grandparent is considered, quote-unquote, difficult to place by the industry. Um, some people will use those words and some people won't. But that is basically what it means. Jill and Nishta began one of their long, thoughtful conversations, asking themselves, are we the right people to raise a Black child? Could we do right by that child? Would our child someday wake up and think, what the hell am I doing with you people? Nishta found the questions uncomfortable because they forced her to reckon with her own latent racism. It meant she had to admit the extent to which she becomes self-congratulatory about her own social consciousness. Even as a woman of color, Nisha realized she'd no longer be able to ignore or politely shake her head at the things she'd always ignored and always politely shook her head at. 
history, literature, art, news, politics, and current events that weren't about her or her own. The adoption form gave them an out, if maybe they weren't up for that. But Jill Anishta couldn't bear the thought of turning away any child. We just checked all the boxes and said, We were willing to have any of those children. It didn't matter what race or gender or anything. And what that meant was that we didn't have to wait as long. And it was nine months. Like being pregnant. (laughs) Yeah, it was nine months. They got an email from the adoption agency. Birth mother had expressed interest in meeting them. Even though the agency had told them it was unlikely they'd be picked by a black mother, they were. This was one of the first stereotypes they had to confront, the myth of widespread homophobia in the black community. The mother had picked them specifically. She liked that both moms were educators. And soon they were having their first phone call. The birth mother told them about her heartburn, said it means the baby will probably have a lot of hair. She said she'd been having trouble sleeping and had been craving barbacoa tacos and Dr. Pepper. The agency set them up on a lunch date at a Tex-Mex restaurant. It's so intimate at the same time that it's so strange and awkward. And, like, what do you say to this person who has said, right, like, I choose you to be my child's parents? It was so humbling and, you know, like, over Mexican food, right? Like, I mean, that's the, um, it's so mundane and so profound and sacred at the same time. And it turns out that she had spent a lot of time at her grandmother's house in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is where I was born and raised, and lived the first 20 years of my life in the same neighborhood. Like, her grandmother's house is less than a mile away from the house that I was born and raised in. And so we were sitting there looking in each other's eyes. Like, it was surreal. It was freaky. And I just thought, this is... Perfect. This is bigger than us. This is bigger than us. Yeah. And in the middle of this legal process, with so many people involved and all the paperwork, that's a really invaluable feeling to have. The birth mother was generous with them. She invited them to a doctor's appointment right away, even though Nish and Jill knew this was difficult for her. They told the birth mother they'd been referring to their someday baby as Peanut, and she liked the name. She said she'd start using it, too. And it was humbling, too, because I think adoption so often focuses on the narrative of the adoptive parents, that sort of noble savior narrative, right? And, like, what a great thing and how hard for you to wait and all this. And, you know, there's a lot of often, I think, really unfair characterization of birth mothers. But our experience was of someone who was very thoughtful and very loving, and doing something very hard, right? It wasn't just about us. It was about so much more than us. Knowing baby Peanut was less than a month away, Nishta started putting her energy into all things breast milk, specifically trying to induce lactation herself and trying to acquire breast milk all over Texas. Jill was out of town and then came home to find Nisha's new obsession very much in motion. She's rented the pump. She's like on Twitter talking to all these women who have all this extra breast milk in their freezer. And she's got all these trips planned to go with an ice chest to all these places all around Houston. And 
I'm like, what is happening? It's like the train left the station and I was left behind. I mean, she had these like lactation muffins. She was like, don't eat that. That's for lactation. I'm like, sorry. You know, I just like, I just stepped into my own house and it was like this whole other world <laughs> all around lactation. After you match with a birth parent, most agencies will tell you not to buy a lot of stuff. Adoption can be fraught. So this was Nishta's outlet. I drove I don't even know how many miles to however many moms who just literally opened their homes and, like, gave me this, like, a precious resource, right? Like, worth its weight in gold, right? Like, and, and to a stranger, right? Like, to a complete stranger. Like, how beautiful to do that. It was cool because, I mean, I didn't go with you on any of these breast milk runs, <laughs> but you would come back telling me that, you know, you pull up into their driveway or onto their gravel, whatever, and they've got political signs for, that are very different than ours. They have religious views that are very different than ours. I mean, these are folks that are just drastically different from us, and yet there was this connection over, we're going to provide this really valuable thing, this breast milk, to, these, to, this, uh, to a child, and we're going to come together over that. So with the new frozen milk supply, some cans of formula ready to go, they're ready to bring home a baby. Plus, the lactation muffins worked, and Nisha was going to be able to breastfeed little Peanut. It was a really special experience for me, until I had to pump at work, which is the worst thing in the whole world. Because maybe you don't want to explain to your male colleague how induced lactation works. For Nisha and Jill, this was already fun. They were coming up with their own ways of doing things, and there'd be a lot more making stuff up as they went along. Like their names. Nisha wanted to be mom, but Jill wanted her own name. She came up with Gigi. 17 days after the taco date, baby Peanut was born. The birth mother welcomed them into the delivery room, and the doctor identified the new baby as a boy. Jill and Nishta suddenly needed a boy's name, and they thought about naming the Peanut after Nishta's father, an S name. So in true 21st century fashion, Nishta called her mom while Jill Googled. I think Jill, like, Googled, like you know, like Indian boy na- baby boy names S, you know, or whatever. And like, I'm asking my mom, I'm like, what do we, you know, what do you think? And they at the same like, moment, weirdly, at the same moment, they both suggested Shiv. They brought their new baby home, and Shiv latched right away. Nishta started to think more about the name they picked. Shiv was named for Shiva, one of the three primary deities in Hinduism. And of course, she knew Shiv has this other meaning: a prison knife. But this hypothetical case where someone would misunderstand Shiv's name wasn't a good enough reason to avoid it. Shiv was already facing some challenges. Two moms, three colors, one family. And by arming Shiv with this ancient Sanskrit name and a badass namesake, she hoped this would empower their kid. Shiva is a container for contradiction, right? Shiva embodies both masculine and feminine identities. We didn't know it at the time, but it's... That's exactly who the kid is. (laughs) That's exactly who it is. It's the perfect name. And in a bit, we'll hear why. Stay with us. (laughs) Advertisements. Welcome back. So when Shiv was almost three years old, Jill, now sometimes called Gigi, 
was home taking care of Chip. So on the dining room table is a um, tape measure, one of those um, retractable tape measures. And I had been doing something in the garden, measuring flower beds or something. And shit, it had one of those little wrist handles on it, those little loops that you can put it on your wrist. Shiv asked if I would affix it to the back of her head. Her head, because these days we use female pronouns for Shiv. Even though the doctor said Shiv was a boy, the story Jill's now telling about the tape measure was one of the first clues from Shiv, amongst many to come, that she's genderqueer. It all started when she asked her Gigi to put a tape measure on her head. And I said, this tape measure? <laughs> and she said, yeah. And this thing is like as big as a coffee cup, right? I mean, it's it's heavy. And I, th- I was like, you want me to put it on the back of your head? So I touched it to the back of her head using the little wrist strap thing. And she says, yeah, like a ponytail. Like a ponytail. I was like, oh. And so we had shaved her head. Uh, you know, it was summer, I think. And it's just easier to keep her hair short. So I got duct tape. <laughs> or shipping tape or something, and taped it to her head and then showed it to her, and she was so pleased. Uh, She was so pleased. And I was referring to Shiv. I mean, Shiv was, we were relating to Shiv using uh, male pronouns at the time. So I took a picture, and I said, look at Shiv. He is so happy. That was one of the best text messages I've ever gotten at work. He asked me to tape this to her, his head to be a ponytail. And left it that way until it just got too heavy and the duct tape couldn't hold it up anymore. And so I thought, okay, this is a thing here. Hair is a thing. Hair is a thing. This started a new phase. Shiv started using a T-shirt as a stand-in for hair, where the neck of the shirt was fit tight against her actual hairline, and the rest of the shirt would hang down to her shoulders. And then her parents got her headbands, so she was wearing shirts in a Lawrence of Arabia style. Over time, it got more elaborate. Sometimes she wanted her hair in a ponytail or sub in a tutu or stuffed octopus. Everything suddenly had potential to be hair. We didn't necessarily think it meant something for a while, right? Like we wanted to be pretty neutral in what Shiv was, quote unquote, allowed to do. Like we try not to have sort of rigid gender roles in mind, especially because I think both of us experienced some of that in terms of, like, femininity being, like, really mapped onto us. on us, too. Yeah, in ways that felt inauthentic. And Jill could relate. This is what she used to fight about with her mother. It was over hair. She wanted, femi- you know, feminine, long, curly, blonde hair on me, and I didn't want it. And she, she forced me to, until I was a teenager, to have permanents. She would put permanents in home perms and stuff. At Shiv's request, they started ordering wigs on Amazon— Wigs became the new shirt hair. And maybe you're hearing a Fox News commentator in your head, like, this is what happens when there isn't a man at home. But Jill thinks that's nonsense. Speaking for this mom here, my, myself, I do not wear princess dresses. I do not do all those frilly things. I do not wear bows in my hair. I don't do any of that stuff. So she certainly did not get that from me. If she was going to be like me, she'd be wearing boots and jeans and, you know, with power tools. While there's no easy roadmap for raising a gender queer kid, having two moms was turning into a major asset for their family. Because as Shiv started saying things like, I'm really a girl, 
they knew how to give her the freedom to be as completely herself as possible. Like, this is deep inside of her. And and that's why she becomes, it breaks her, right? Like, the idea of having to be someone that doesn't feel authentic to her. And, like, that's at age six, right? Like, imagine the damage that gets done as kids get older and older and are being asked or forced to live a life that isn't true to them. And, like, having gone through that experience of having to assert, I know this to be true about myself, and it's scary, and I know people aren't going to like it, but I just can't not tell the truth about this. Like, it's clearly not about defiance. It's about the, the fact that she is being fully herself and just on, and honoring that. For us to honor that is so important to me. And a big way to honor that starts with hair. You've got to do the hair. and It's cool. a huge part of her braids, identity. Braids and cornrows and styles and just all kinds of stuff. And it's, I think it's fun. Being a hairdresser has always been one of my backup careers. So I think it's fun. I yeah, spend thank a lot. God for YouTube and I, like and all knowledgeable the, black women who, who are, are willing, willing to share. Exactly. As soon as Shiv was able to talk about it, started pointing out the differences between her mom and Gigi's and her own skin colors and asking questions about her experiences out in the world. Like when an older white boy on the playground grabbed away a dump truck toy and told Shiv, black boys can't play here. Or the time an older white woman accused Shiv of cutting in line at a kiddie ride. And Shiv asked her mom and Gigi why the lady was mean to her and not the other kids. In raising their kid, Nisha and Jill are doing what they've always done, opening themselves up to long, challenging conversations. But of course, it comes with really hard questions that are no fun to answer as a parent, right? Like, why are these people acting this way to this group of people? And why do some people think this way? And it's, you know, an open question. (laughs) Um, So letting her feel her feelings about it, I think that's one big piece for me. Um, sometimes I want to just be like, no, it's so great and everything's going to be fine and celebrate and whatever. And it's like, I remember that feeling of like, I wish I was white. It would just be easier, right? Or why doesn't my hair look like that girl's hair? And to let her experience those feelings, not as wrong or bad, but to feel them. And then usually when she's allowed to feel them, she's able to move into some other space of acceptance or celebration or whatever that may be. Nisha and Jill had worried about their family being difficult to explain. But to Shiv, it's the easiest thing in the world. Like, the other day they were on the golf course and ran into a woman who'd met Shiv and Jill before, but never Shiv and Nisha. She, like, looked at me and was like, who are you? And Shiv goes, that's my mom. And the woman goes, well, I thought she was your mom and pointed to Jill. And Shiv goes, I have two moms, a mama and a Gigi, and was just like, duh, you know. <laughs> like just got on her bike and like, rode right off. <laughs> like, Mic drop. <laughs> Get with the program, lady. This is not hard. And Shiv's little friends, they also get it. Gigi has now become a distinction among, like, Shiv's friends. Like, Shiv's friends call me, like, Shiv's mom, or sometimes Nishta, or Miss Nishta, or whatever, but they call Jill Gigi. Yeah, none of them call me Jill. They're, it's like... Shiv, it's Gigi, or Gigi's here, or Gigi, can I have a grilled cheese sandwich? It's sort of like you created a category of parent with that name, which I think is pretty fun. Was there a moment for you guys where it's like, another checkbox? Like, we had so many checkboxes. We're adding another here? Sure. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, honestly, at some point. It's like, really? Are you kidding? You know? It's not like we're trying to do this. We are really not trying. And in so many other ways, we're so, like, 
conventional and boring. and boring, you know? I mean, we're just yeah. these... Like, well, like, what do we do? Like, we pick Shiv up from school, we come home, you know, there maybe is a dance party, Shiv wants to watch more television than we think Shiv should, somebody's got to make dinner, Shiv wants to read Harry Potter, she wants to stay up later. Well, then, I mean, like, it's like parenting, and you know? We lived in a gated golf course community in oh, a suburb of that. Houston. And then now we moved to Phoenix and we live in this other suburb with a pool and a... Yeah, I, it's not like we live some kind of like crazy alternative off the rails life. I mean, we're pretty conventional. I except mean, for all these boxes. Right. <laughs> Three years after adopting Shiv, on the day the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, Jill proposed to Nishta over a text message, using more exclamation points than she usually uses in a month. And three days later, they got married at the Houston County Courthouse. Even though they could now say wife, the joy of their relationship still comes from being partners. I try not to give people unsolicited parenting advice because I think that's obnoxious. But two things I like to tell people when I find out that someone's having a kid— to counter some of the typical stuff, which is like, oh, sleep down because you're probably, you know, that sort of like doom and gloom stuff that comes, is like, one, get excited about falling in love with your person all over again if you're doing this with another person, right? Because the ways that you get to see them as parents is just like a whole other level of knowing. I mean, there are parts of Jill I don't think I ever would have had access to ninja skills included, (laughs) if we had not become parents. And that is such a gift. So I always tell people that. And I always tell people, you are going to have so much fun. It's more fun than I thought it would be. It's a lot of fun. We laugh a lot. We do laugh a lot. Like, I didn't do crafts and things, but I do now. And That's I, true. I look them up on the internet. You are very good at drawing, and I didn't know that before. Yeah, and I, I have a chance to practice my drawing. I didn't know I was that good at drawing. She does not come to me and say, Mommy, draw this. She, she knows better. Right. Yeah. Ugh, what a boring, conventional American family. You can read all about them in Nish Damira's book, Brown, White, and Black, An American Family at the Intersection of Race gender, sexuality, and religion. We want to hear from you. What's in your family mission statement? Tell us in the comments for this episode. That's episode number 197. This episode was produced by me, Andres Lenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Hilary's new book, Weird Parenting Wins, is out now. And we have a few signed copies left. Say if you need a late Mother's Day gift, you can find them at podswag.com slash LST. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, while we were working on Nisha and Jill's story about adoption, we heard from another listener having a totally different experience with all that adoption paperwork. Even worse, the transracial adoption workshops. All of my notes have like anger, anger, like parenting tip. Anger, 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 like parenting tip. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories. Right now, we're interested in hearing about your experiences with polycystic ovarian syndrome. 
is one of the most common fertility issues out there. So tell us your stories. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Stitching!